Hello and welcome to another episode of interest.co.nz's Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan. Today we have another take on the inflation theme. We're looking at the impact on inflation from moves to combat climate change and what can be done to mitigate what are sometimes referred to as fossilflation and greenflation. We'll also take a look at the impact of the climate itself on inflation through what's referred to as climateflation. I'm joined by Rod Carr, who's chairman of the Climate Change Commission. In the past, Rod has also been chairman, deputy governor and acting governor of the Reserve Bank, so he's well-versed in all things inflation. Now, we can certainly debate whether we are moving far or fast enough to mitigate climate change, but we are moving. To this end, in New Zealand during May, the government released an emissions reduction plan and the first three emissions budgets, which outline the carbon emissions New Zealand must cut over the next 14 years under Zero Carbon Act requirements as we strive to reduce net emissions of greenhouse gases to zero by 2050. This, of course, is coming at a time when inflation is running at the highest level it has been in decades, both here in New Zealand and overseas as well. Look, hi Rod, and thanks for joining us. Um, We'll jump straight into oil, not literally, but um, it's obviously a key factor in what's referred to as fossilflation, reflecting the legacy cost of our dependency on fossil energy sources, and it's caused by increases in oil and gas prices. Although recession fears have started to hit commodity prices uh, a bit in the last couple of weeks, oil prices are still at historic highs, and this of course feeds through to the petrol pump and inflation. With Russia being a major oil producer, obviously its invasion of Ukraine is a major contributor, but other factors are at play as well. Obviously climate change concerns, reduced investment due to the ESG or environmental, social and governance focus from investors and an end of oil narrative are contributing to reduced workers and investment in the sector, which impacts supply, but demand is still strong. So if you reduce supply and don't lower demand, prices do tend to rise. We're moving to electric vehicles, but obviously internal combustion engines are going to be with us for some time in our car-centric country. I'm just wondering how hard is the transition away from oil going to be, do you think? So Gareth, I would not underestimate the challenge that humanity faces in decarbonising our livelihoods and lifestyles. Um, The fossil fuel technology that has been developed and deployed largely since the middle of the 19th century is incredibly powerful as a source of energy. And we have embedded that in our civilization, in the way we earn our livings and how we live our lives. And that transition is going to be costly. And that transition needs to be done with urgency. And the consequence is that relative prices will change. The price of high emission lifestyles will rise and the vulnerability of high emission livelihoods will increase. We've obviously seen a lot of references this year to the cost of living crisis, both here in New Zealand and overseas. In responding to this, the government reduced the petrol excise duty by 25 cents per litre and road user charges halved public transport fares. There was obviously some political pressure to take action there and there's also a risk, I guess, that if the government doesn't mitigate high fuel prices, lower income earners can be hit harder than other people and there's obviously potential for civil unrest there, which we are seeing in places like Sri Lanka now. Um, but also taxes are a way governments incentivize or decentivize certain behaviours 
and reducing fuel excise potentially works against other government initiatives aimed to encourage the uptake of, of EVs such as clean car rebates, cash for clunkers and exemptions from road user charges. I just wonder what incentives or disincentives should a, a climate responsible government be offering in, in this environment we're in at the moment? So I think, Gareth, one of the things to keep in mind is what is often called or referred to as the just transition. In other words, given we have to make this very substantial change in how we live and how we earn our living, um, there is clear evidence that abrupt and disruptive change imposes unavoidable burdens and provides windfall gains to some members in society. What we need to do is, as the government has, outline a plan and then get on with it and stick with it. The opportunity for governments to try and mitigate the most adverse impacts on the most vulnerable in our society is a responsibility of governments to maintain a pathway to a low emissions future. And therefore, the short-term expediency of trying to reduce impacts that don't just change behaviour because people don't have the time or resources to adjust, but are very clearly of a temporary nature to only buy time in the short term to make adjustments, is a plausible part of a transition strategy. So I'll say again, whether or not a particular policy event, such as reducing a tax or imposing a short-term benefit are appropriate needs to be taken in the context of what we must do, which is put this country on a sustainable pathway to reduce gross emissions from how we live our lives and how we earn our livelihoods. There'll be bumps in the road, but the direction of travel has to be absolutely clear and beyond dispute so that households and businesses can make choices for the medium and long term, knowing that higher missions are going to become expensive ways of living. I guess there, you, you, I, I wonder what, how, how long is a short-term measure or a temporary measure, and um, especially with you know, three-year election cycles and, and, you know, with a war in Ukraine, obviously petrol prices may be high for some time just off the back of that, let alone other issues we've, we've, we've mentioned already. To what extent are you worried that inflation fears could slow down our efforts to combat climate change? Well, first of all, I would say that the major cause of the consumer price inflation we see today is not climate change or our response to it, that the amount of pricing of carbon emissions in the global economy is modest and has only risen slightly over the last decade. The real challenge is that in our response first to the global financial crisis in 2008 and then more recently to the pandemic in 2020, the world's central banks supported by the world's governments, have created an enormous amount of very low-cost credit. And it is that abundance of low-cost credit that has put pressure on the demand side of consumer pricing, while the pandemic itself has constrained supply. 
and that has been compounded in some product supplies, particularly in agricultural products, by the war in the Ukraine. So don't overinterpret climate as the driver of the current decades high levels of consumer price inflation. The relative price changes that are needed to incentivize reduction in high emissions production and reward investment in lower emissions technologies, products and services is a change in relative prices that will see some prices rise, but other prices decline. We've seen massive reductions in the cost of electricity generation from renewable sources, and those are reflected now in the much lower operating costs of battery electric cars once you overcome the capital cost of acquisition. What's your expectation in terms of how long we are going to still need fossil fuels and oil in particular for? Well, certainly the demonstration path, which is only one of many pathways to net zero by 2050 done by the Climate Change Commission, suggested that even in 2035, 60% of all of the motor vehicles on New Zealand's roads would still be internal combustion engine cars. The transition is going to take time, but the sooner we do it, the better off we'll be. The reality for New Zealand is that low emissions products and services are how we will make our living in the middle of this century. Whether that's low emission protein and carbohydrate production, whether that's low emission energy generation and distribution, whether that's low emission transport and mobility, these are the technologies that if we embrace sooner will be to our advantage. That it is not all about cost and loss. In the case of a low emissions future which the planet will need to embrace, being not necessarily at the bleeding edge, but not being the laggard is going to reward New Zealanders by the middle of this century. Now, the other, well, the next aspect I was interested in talking to you about is so-called greenflation. So we're referring here to, I guess, with the rise of green technologies accounting for growing demand for metals and minerals as we strive to, to reduce carbon emissions. So key commodities needed in the green transition, including the likes of copper, which is obviously crucial as an electrical conductor, lithium used in rechargeable batteries, cobalt, which is used in alloys, batteries and electroplating, that type of thing. Isabel Schnappel, Schnappel, who is a member of the European Central Bank's executive board, pointed out in a speech recently that EVs use over six times more minerals than their conventional counterparts and an offshore wind plant requires over seven times the amount of copper compared with a gas-fired plant. So these key tools of the green transition all come from mining and demand for them is rising. <clears throat> However, due to environmental concerns, regulations and those ESG-focused investors, getting new mining projects up and running can take years if it even happens at all. So we have a story here, I guess, of rising demand and constrained supply. Um, I'm just wondering, what do you think can be done about this? How And how will this play out, especially for a small country like New Zealand? Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, there's no doubt we're at the relatively early stage of the next wave of innovation and electrification 
that's both in terms of the generation, but also the distribution and the, the appliances and, and things that plug into the electricity grid and supply. So from that point of view, I'm confident that we will find multiple and additional ways of meeting the needs for electrification. That already uh, the investigations in non-cobalt-based battery technologies, advances in the use of capacitors for storage. Um, th there are now billions of dollars of global investment going to reduce the need for the rare earth metals, which have currently been such a large part of our battery electric technology. So the incentives are there, the, the willingness of investors to front to invest in those opportunities is real, uh, and I see those as emerging quite rapidly. From New Zealand's point of course, we are largely a price taker for technologies. The reality is that we didn't design the battery electric car, we're likely to import those technologies from overseas. What we can do better is use more carefully what we bring on shore. Um, there is evidence now that about 97% of the uh, components of a battery can be recovered in the laboratory. Right, So we've proven the physics and chemistry of recycling right down to the smallest parts. They're not yet commercially scaled. But the reality is that it is much easier to conceive of a world where we recycle the components of a battery than try and capture the combustion emissions from millions and millions of points of combustion on the planet. So absolutely, we need to reduce the amount of materials we use for a given outcome. We need to reuse as much of the resources we have currently extracted and we need to recycle wherever we can. These are absolutely essential ingredients in a sustainable world in the mid-21st century. On to climate flation next. Now, I mean, this is obviously caused by an increasing number of natural disasters and severe weather events, and it, it impacts economic activity and prices. For example, it, this impacts food production, food supply and food prices, um, which we, we're obviously seeing around the world already. I'm just wondering, you know, do we just, I guess as humanity, not just New Zealand, but uh, for, for the whole world, do we just have to live with this and cope as best we can? I think the challenge of adaptation is very large. The reality of a warmer, wetter, windier and wilder world is now with us. This is not something for our children and grandchildren. This is for us. There, it is going to disrupt the agricultural systems that we have built over the last 200 years. It is going to challenge where we grow, what we grow, and how we distribute it. It is going to mean that there are very, very real risks of droughts causing starvation that the reality is that are technologies that can create controlled growing environments in which we are able to address some of the most adverse impacts of climate change. However, the opportunity to use the natural environment the way we have is at an end. We can no longer extract and exploit the natural environment to create our food supplies. As a consequence, it is likely that we are going to internalize 
some of those externalities, and that will be reflected in higher costs for carbohydrates and proteins produced in a sustainable world. We don't have a choice about that. What we do have a choice about is how quickly we confront and embrace that challenge and seek to reduce the costs associated with sustainable food production and make our lifestyles such that we create the foods we need, not necessarily the foods that feed our own greed. So there's, I guess, some tough decisions ahead on that front. Well, I think the world is already confronting those decisions, that some low-income households are unable to afford some of the types of foods that they both need and have come to enjoy, that New Zealand has made its way in the world by clearing large amounts of forestry and undertaking ruminant pastoral agriculture to produce milk and meat protein. We need to own the challenge of producing that milk and meat protein with dramatically lower levels of emissions and dramatically lower impacts on the environment. That is our opportunity. Our farmers are innovative and responsive. They have been able to increase productivity while maintaining and growing profits. And now they must face the challenge of showing and leading the world how to create protein and carbohydrates with year-on-year reductions in environmental impact. I'd like to have, a, have a, a chat as well about how governments and central banks should respond. If we start off with governments, <clears throat> we've already touched a little bit on fiscal policy or how governments use spending and tax policies to influence the economy. The COVID era has seen a much more active fiscal policy from a lot of governments around the world, including our own, than we had to become used to probably in the last 30 or 40 years. I just wonder now, are we are we going to need to see continued major fiscal policy initiatives um, to support the climate change fight? I think we're going to need all of the tools in the toolkit. We are going to need effective market pricing in order to provide the choices, incentives and returns for the investment in lower emission technologies and lifestyles. We are going to need regulation where the unavoidable burdens fall on those most vulnerable and least able to change. We are going to need fiscal tools and levers to assist in supporting the transition. And we are going to make the case that monetary policy has a part to play, but cannot do all of the lifting without causing the general price inflation that we are now seeing. So that's onto the monetary policy aspect. And I guess, you know, what can we expect from central banks such as the Reserve Bank? Um, Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr last October said in the formation of monetary policy, the Reserve Bank will have to look through some very obvious price shocks. But um, in an inflationary world, they'll be under a lot of pressure um, to get inflation down and keep it down. So how should monetary policy respond to inflation that is part of the transition to a more sustainable economy? 
So we have to remember that New Zealand's Reserve Bank now has a dual mandate. It needs not only to maintain consumer price stability, defined as being between 1% and 3% per annum in the medium term, but also it has to have an eye on the level of unemployment in the economy. So those are judgments and trade-offs that uh, the Monetary Policy Committee at the bank will make. What is now observable is a lift in the general price level. So it's not unique to a change in relative prices where the price of oil might go up and the price of something else might go down, where the price of red meat might rise, but the price of cabbages might fall. What we are seeing is general price rises across food and energy and most levels and items in household budgets. That generalized consumer price inflation is what the bank is tasked with making sure does not take hold. We know from history that once you get into this price spiral, where last year's increases in prices need to be compensated by this year's rise in costs, that that cycle causes enormous economic damage. And the longer you leave it before you address it, then the tighter and higher interest rates will need to go in order to reduce demand, in order to take the pressure off the prices. That's what causes recessions. That at the moment, New Zealand has got a growing economy, but the growth rate has been slowing while consumer price rises have been increasing. That phenomena of price inflation with no growth is called stagflation. And that can be a very difficult set of economic settings to break out of, as we found in parts of the 1970s. Is there a danger that's where we're heading? And I mean, if we if we look at, I mean, obviously, what's going on in the world today, but this transition you're talking about, getting to net zero economy by, by 2050 and having still 60% of our um, vehicles using um, you know, internal combustion engines by 2035. We are obviously in a long transition here. Um, there are going to be some tough times in it. How optimistic are you that we can actually come through this and achieve what you know what you would like to see us achieve? I remain optimistic, but but I remain optimistic because I am convinced there are very real opportunities for New Zealand in this transition, and that if we can understand those opportunities that make for a better, cleaner, greener and healthier society for all New Zealanders by 2050, where we reduce gross emissions from how we earn our livings and how we live our lives, we will see that as an opportunity, not a threat. We will see fiscal policy as an investment, not a cost. We will see the new jobs that are creating as being more sustainable and less vulnerable than the old tasks which we are no longer fulfilling. And I think that's what the optimism comes from, is from the opportunity that is real. New Zealand is not soldiering alone on this campaign. The world recognises the challenge. Other countries are already seeing and seizing the opportunities 
We see it in the way in which the UK has developed offshore wind, which it now sells to the world. We see it in Norway that has developed some of the most advanced infrastructure for supporting electrification, which it now sells to the world. We see it in China in its advances in the solar panel technology, where it is now the world's largest global manufacturer of solar arrays. So there are opportunities here to be not, as I said, at the bleeding edge, but now that the die is cast, seeing and seizing the opportunities that must be developed to create the more sustainable low emissions future within the next 30 years. Look, thanks a lot for that, Rod. That's Rod Carr, who's chairman of the Climate Change Commission, and I'm Gareth Vaughan at interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.